Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Jeff Rugby, who has written and created a very unique music book series called Gunning for Hits. It's a graphic novel and currently six issues deep, set entirely in the music world. Artists, managers, label people, hangers-on, fanboys, it's all here. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Steve. Good to see you again. You as well. And in full disclosure for our listeners, you and I worked for many years at the same label. When you served as the director of A&R at Rikodis and I worked as the creative director, I think it's fair to say that your label experience informs gunning for hits in a myriad of ways. That is uh, 100% true. <laughs> Good and bad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know... Uh... I've been in the music business almost my entire life, and I've seen a lot of <laughs> a lot of good things, and I've seen a lot of bad things. But the protagonist in that story is also an ANR man, an ANR director. Can you tell our listening audience and your reading audience what an ANR director at a label does? Yeah, so ANR director is, of course, a term that people still use, but it's a very outdated term because it really it stands for artist and repertoire. What that meant in the 50s and the 40s was you would go into the Brill Building and you'd find guys who had songs and then you'd bring them to singers that you had signed to the label. So you were responsible for, you know, getting a line on good material for your artists that would elevate them. You know, ever since the 60s and rock and roll, it's been less about the songwriting aspect of it because it's mostly artists who write their own material. Nowadays, maybe it is back to that a little bit because you're putting lots of artists together to or producers and, you know, guys who make beats and um, singles. The credits now have like 14 people. <laughs> well, you know, when you worked at Ryko Disc, you were involved in a couple of different ways. Some of the back catalog stuff that you did. Do you want to name a couple of those? It's quite uh, impressive. Um, so yeah, uh, I worked on the Bowie stuff, uh, the Elvis Costello stuff. And by stuff, and I just want to tell our listeners by stuff, it's the entire back catalog of the artist. It's not like just a record or two. Right. So we had the Bowie catalog, the, you know, the, all the records between, from Space Oddity to uh, Scary Monsters. And uh, with Elvis Costello, it was everything from My Aim is True to Blood and Chocolate. God, there are so many other ones in there. You know, the Undertones catalog. Uh, Yoko? Yo, yeah, Yoko Ono, uh, which was really David Greenberg did more of that than I did. But yeah, that was a big one. And, you know, like one-off things where we dug up these great lost records by people like the True Believers, uh, Alejandro Escovedo's band. And there was a whole unreleased album there. So, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, I wasn't there when they recorded the stuff, but I got to put my fingerprints on, which was fun. And you also get to put your fingerprints onto the listeners' ears and brains by helping to get that stuff to the market and to the right label and that kind of thing. You know, yeah, that's something that's um, hard to have now in the music business because curation is really important. And we've seen that with some catalogs, some that 
you and I actually worked on, like the Zappa catalog, <laughs> uh, where we tried very hard to curate it properly, but we were defeated <laughs> by the estate at the time. And now I think they're trying to recover from that. And there's a lot of Zappa stuff coming out. And they're finding that 20 years of pissing off the fans is apparently not a good way to handle your catalog. <laughs> from my perspective, let's do it again. It's really not in the vernacular for that particular <laughs> catalog. So, you know, those industry connections and stuff are quite obvious in Gunning for Hits, and some are more beneath the surface. What and how did you want this series to reflect your experience, if at all? Well, so the A&R guy in the story has a mysterious background that will unfold as the story continues in further volumes. Essentially, and I'm kind of spoiling the end of the first issue, but he has a background as being a hitman. And so it's kind of funny juxtaposing, you know, Hitman and, uh, you know, the music business. I'm not the first guy to do that. <laughs> sure. Um, as an A&R person, when you're out there and you're a talent scout, you find like new people and you make these records with them that you really believe in. And then for whatever reason, they don't connect. But, you know, it's really frustrating and it's hard. And because, you know, music is art and you get emotionally invested and it kind of hurts of <laughs> when it doesn't work out. So the idea that you could be an A&R guy and also not be afraid to put a gun in somebody's face because they weren't playing your song, <laughs> you know, is a bit of a revenge fantasy for every A&R guy because, you know, everybody signs stuff, no matter how successful you are, that doesn't work out. And you've always been a comic book fan. And I remember you can crank out some mean sketches. You did some stuff for Riker Disc. Was this kind of a natural progression for you? Or is it because of the kind of crash of the music industry where you're forced to find, you know, something else for a moment? Or how did it come about? I always wanted to get into comics. In fact, you know, my original career plan was, you know, go to art school and try to get into comics and, you know, be the millionth guy drawing Spider-Man. And for you know just because art school the art school i went to sucked uh it was in hartford that didn't help uh <laughs> and i had an opportunity you know to move to minneapolis in 1984 to pursue the music business and so i dropped out of art school and i moved to minneapolis the year that purple rain came out the year that let it be came out like so minneapolis was on fire with amazing music the career just took off because the guy I went to work for was one of the founders of Brico. I went out there to help him open up some CD-only stores, <laughs> just, you know, hardly like a, a career path, but it got me there. And then he, as a partner of Ryko Disc, hired me to work at Ryko. In each of the issues for Gunning for Hits, at the back end, you have a section called Back Matter, which I found fascinating. It answers some questions, I think, even for somebody who knows you, but for the people who are out there, it fills in some context and things. And you talk a bit about how the success of things like Mad Men and The Sopranos and The Wire inspired Gunning for Hits. For me... Uh, and all my life, I've been fascinated in these sort of deep dives into things that we don't really know about. Like we top line understand what they're about, but we don't know, you know, what's the whole underneath the surface, right? And so I feel like all of those shows were about, yeah, there's, you know, the emotional arcs and all of that. But like the hook is, you know, we're going to show you 
the inside workings of, you know, whether it's the mafia or advertising in the 60s or how these guys in Baltimore are trying to track down drug dealers. And the fact that those are some of the most, you know, critically acclaimed television shows of, you know, our lifetimes gave me some hope that people would be interested in the same kind of deep dive when it came to the music industry. And that's really what I want to do here. There's a, uh, I don't know what you call it, a pretense or, you know, there's this additional hook of the guy being a killer. Um, but, uh, but it's really to explore the music business. And then in a broader sense, you're going to get into some, you know, some stuff like gun control and racism in the next volume, which is uh, about a, a goth rock band you know like shock rock band and a uh, and a gangster rap group in the late 80s you know it's it's going to be about more than the music business but the music business is the backdrop yeah and in a way those three shows that you mentioned and they had remarkably uh, loyal audiences as well um, but, you know, those shows were about those things that you mentioned, but there's always different subtexts there, which is, is interesting. And I can see now, you know, the model that, that you have for that. You know, I noticed you dated to 1989, I think, if I'm not mistaken, where you kind of conceived this idea, which was the year that Ryko just closed the deal for Bowie's back catalog. Should I read anything into that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. What people tend to forget because of a well-curated history is that David Bowie was on the skids in 1989. He had put out Never Let Me Down, which had a you know huge tour, but you know shipped gold and returned platinum is the old uh, you know old industry adage that some people will recognize. So you know it was like kind of they put all this money into it. They thought it was going to be Let's Dance. Well, they thought it was going to be Let's Dance Three after Tonight didn't turn out to be Let's Dance Two. Um, then he went and made the Tin Machine record, which he still got a giant EMI records David Bowie advanced for, but they hated and didn't understand. And then during the course of that, they dropped it. You know, when we did the deal for the catalog, we knew, okay, David Bowie's catalog is filled with hits, and this is great, but maybe nobody cares. Maybe in five years, he's playing the state fair circuit. You know, I mean, it happened to a lot of a lot of artists of his generation. And so I started to think, what would happen if it just tanked? And when I was a kid, I worked in record stores and I worked in a record store when John Lennon was shot. And, you know, uh, this is very cynical, but it's also true. Nothing sells records like the artist dying. Right. Like right. that's, that's your last great publicity stuff. <laughs> and, and I watched people come in and, you know, you couldn't get John Lennon records. They couldn't make them fast enough. People would come in and buy all of them because they were going to be worth money. I mean, it was crazy. So that uh, sort of made me think, well, okay, let's say we signed David Bowie's catalog and nobody cares about him and we can't sell any. Well, well then we'd have to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're all glad that didn't quite happen. But uh, of but, course, yeah, but yeah. here we yeah. are, you know, uh, you know, and reading your tale, and I went through the first six, and it was fascinating. And another thing in Back Matter, which you know, I hope everybody reads, you know, I hope they don't just read the graphic bits, but dig into your career and kind of the, the machinations and thoughts behind this series. But you talk about the discovery of a 30-plus volume French comic book series that you found. What was that about, and how did you... You saw that as kind of a sign of a confidence, maybe, or that, that you were on, onto something. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I was in Quebec City 
it was in 2016 and Bowie had died. That really made me start thinking about doing this again because, you know, he did Black Star and I thought, wow, this is just this monumental piece of work from a guy who knows he's dying. And, you know, it made me think about, well, I knew this guy and now he's gone and we're all going to be gone eventually. So let's pursue this dream of doing a comic book about the music business. But, you know, most people think of comic books and they think of Superman and Batman. There are tons of amazing comics and graphic novels about all sorts of stuff, like the architect who designed New York City and, mm -hmm. you know, just crazy things. But I wasn't sure if there'd be an audience for the music business. And the French love comic books and they publish them as what we call graphic novels. They don't do the floppy monthly comics. They just put them all out at once in one story. And I was in this great French bookstore in Quebec City and looking at all of the French books. And there was a 30-volume series about the IRS. And I thought, if somebody can <laughs> do 30 volumes on the IRS on forensic accounting, <laughs> the music business is way cooler and way more glamorous. <laughs> so that really made me think about it. And then, you know, two days later, we were in Montreal, and we walked into a, a restaurant to get something to eat, and Prince had died. And that was sort of like, you know, I was in tears for days, but it also just drove home that life is short deal. So Wow. We're speaking with Jeff Rugby, who is the author and the creator of the Gunning for Hits music thriller series. It's a series of graphic novels. We've obviously talked to a lot of book authors, and so I know how that process works. You know, working in the music business, I pretty much know how that process works. I have no idea how the graphic novel process works. So you're the writer. You obviously can draw yourself. What did you present to the publisher, and how did you present that to them? So the publisher that I went with was a company called Image, which was really the only publisher I wanted to work with. And luckily, they were interested in working with me, which was great. 2016, I'd written the storyline out. Uh, I had the script for the first issue, maybe the second issue, and I was trying to find an artist. So the way that they work is different than other publishers. You don't get an advance and get paid for writing it, get paid for drawing it. You bring them the finished sample, and they'll decide if they want to publish it or not. The difference is that you get to retain your rights. So having worked with all of these artists in the music business who retain their rights, I was like, yeah, you know, I want to own the rights to my material. and that gives me the freedom to license it to film and TV, to license it to foreign territories or translations. Um, all that stuff just comes directly to me rather than them owning a piece. That's unique to image in the industry? Mostly, yeah. For a minute, DC and Marvel, who are the two main superhero publishers, they tried to do that. And then I think at one point the bean counters were like, why are we being nice to artists and writers? This is stupid. And so they, they stopped doing that. But the way I presented it to Image is I found an artist who was great, really great sensibility. And he was supposed to have six pages done for me for San Diego in 2016. And I had appointments with all these publishers to, to show it to. I was leaving for San Diego on Tuesday. And on Friday, he said, I don't have anything. And he had done so much work. He'd done character designs. He'd done rough sketches of pages. So I didn't have what I was promising I was going to have to show everybody. And so I put all his designs and the script and the premise into a little eight and a half by five and a half, you know, saddle stitch booklet. And I brought those to San Diego and I pitched it with that. And then Image helped put me together with the artist. So. 
So that's not Moritat then, the first artist. The first guy was not Moritat. Okay. No, so no. Moritat and Silver are the illustrator and colorist, and they do just an amazing job. You know, I'm curious how that process works. You know, you being an A&R guy and weighing in perhaps on a song or a production during demos, did you pick them because of their style or did you art direct them or did you just because of who they were turn them loose and let them go? So it's funny because, you know, if people had asked me, yeah, you could work with Moritat when I was looking for an artist, I would have just thought he wouldn't have been interested and I could never get him to do it. And so I'm really super lucky that he was interested in it uh, and excited about it because I never thought that I'd be able to get someone like him. And, you know, he's got a great resume. He's drawn a lot of comics that I really love and I love his style. I couldn't believe it when Image said, well, would you think of working with him? And I was like, yeah, you know, of course. Um, and then he brought the colorist, Casey, along. Casey's amazing, too. So we had a really, uh, really good time working together. It sounds like from the meetings with Image, you did you have complete control of the story? like creative control or like do they say well you know that's a little dark you know there is one in the, in episode one there's one really good twist that i didn't see coming uh from the manager about a request and i was like whoa and um <laughs> you know how, how how does that work you know in the industry so that's the great thing about image they are very hands-off in terms of you know they don't weigh in editorially they definitely look through it and i think if they saw something that was you know a red flag they would raise their hands and certainly it was kind of funny because one of the characters is sort of a bowie figure and the second issue we did a cover that was an homage to station station they got it and some of the, you know and it's a very young staff there and some of the people said, well, you know, nobody's going to know that this is, a, you know, a David Bowie album cover because everybody listens to music on streaming, which, you know, is a valid concern to a certain extent. But uh, my response to them was, well, tell you what, if we can get 1% of 1% of 1% of the people who do know what this reference is to buy it, it'll be the best-selling comic book of the year. <laughs> and, and, um, which sort of ended the discussion. And, you know, to be honest, they may have been right that it didn't make a super great comic book cover, but I think it sort of stood out on the stands and it was, you know, very referential to that thing. But they never were like, do a different cover. Right. Well, and the first one kind of establishes, it's got another Bowie, kind of a serious Moonlight era guy. And it, it very much visually establishes that it's it's a rock and roll series, at, at least. And you may have seen this guy. And I loved the Station to Station cover. I just, I, you know, obviously, I that was my favorite Bowie album. As soon as I saw it, I was like, how would you not know? Unless maybe it's just 500 pixels by 500 pixels, you know. But um, I loved it. It was really interesting to see how that you could work that into the storyline. Yeah, it was fun doing that kind of stuff. I mean, there's so much, every page has music business and, you know, inside joke stuff buried in it. A lot of the dialogue has inside joke stuff and it's crazy. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And, you know, one of the things I noticed right away, and I'm sure most music geeks of a certain era will notice, is your Gunning for Hits logo. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, that, I mean, there may be people who don't know it, but can you just tell us what, what you're going for there? So, yeah, yeah, you know, my career basically in the music business exists because of the compact disc. There's no question about it. And, you know, a lot of people's careers who were in the music business from, you know, the 80s until the early thousands, like the compact disc revolutionized everything and it made, you know, old content new again. Uh, in fact, there was a there was an investment banker guy I knew who had a really good term for it, which was resuscitating the collateral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a banker. Yeah, that's a banker. I wanted the logo to look like the compact disc logo. And I kind of visualized it in my head, but I didn't have the Photoshop skills or whatever to put it together. So I got a friend of mine as a 12-year-old who was a big uh, Photoshop nut, and he put it together for me. It's spot on. I'm curious if the <laughs> publisher or the creatives at Image, did they pick up on that? Well, you know, some people did and some people didn't. You call Gunning for Hits, and you talked a little bit about this, but you said it's a comic book revenge fantasy for every song that you ever loved that should have been a hit. Can you expand on that? Give me a couple of favorite songs that should have been hits. Oh, man. Well, God, there's just so many. I mean... Give me uh, three. Give me three. You can think of three. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, Calling All Destroyers by this band called Czar that I don't understand why... They were the last great rock band, as far as I'm concerned. Degeneration. That should have been huge. Like, it was the perfect intersection of all those things that were happening at that moment. They were amazing live. They had great, catchy songs. I don't know, you know, who didn't get the right bag of cocaine to make that work. <laughs> but uh, but that's, uh, you know, something that never happened. And then, you know, there's people I work with at Ryko, like uh, there's this band Waltham from Boston that should have been huge. Every song on that record was a hit and, you know, couldn't get the world to pay attention. And part of that, you know, is the label and part of that's the state of the world. And, you know, maybe if they were called Boston. Oh, wait a minute. Um, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they haven't had a hit for quite some time either. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the characters you've created. Uh, as we mentioned, the main protagonist is an A&R guy, Martin Mills, and you call him an amoral sociopath. So just another A&R guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly uh, uh, a lot of A&R guys are amoral sociopaths. Uh, and uh, it's funny listening to like music industry podcasts now and going, oh, it's good to see he hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, the ultimate story of Gunning for Hits, which I have planned out the course of Martin's whole life, is how he is redeemed from being an immoral sociopath. It's a long, slow, dirty road. Let me put it that <laughs> way. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned this uh, with the podcast and stuff. I couldn't help but notice that he shares a name with a real-life independent <laughs> record store and label entrepreneur. Is that coincidence, or should we not read anything into that? And people can research that on their own if they'd like. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's funny, well, because a, a friend of ours who worked at Ryko, Sonia Colrat, uh, was a publicist at Ryko, and she now works for Beggar's Banquet, and the guy who runs Beggar's Banquet is Martin Mills. So, and I never thought of it. Oh, man. It's a little bit of that trick of the, uh, the street you grew up on. Uh, but then I took the first name. I grew up on Mill Street, so that's how Mills was like. I need to name this guy. And then Martin is from another uh, from a movie that I really like. Uh, just the lead character's name is Martin's. So it's just a coincidence. That's I'm sure uh, everyone at Beggars is happy to hear that. So in issue one, the band Martin Mills is interested in is called Stunted Growth. Again, are they an amalgam of bands you've signed, or just your average indie band in a comic book? Um, they're not an amalgam of bands that I signed, but they are kind of an amalgam of like some of the bands that I just named, like Czar and Degeneration, who should have been huge. If you read the story, you see that Martin helps make them huge using some sort of nefarious methods. <laughs> so again, you know, that's the sort of the revenge fantasy aspect of it. It's mm. like, it's hard to convey music in comics. So I created a playlist that has some of the bands on it that I think kind of feed into what the sound of stunted growth is in my head. Gotcha. You know, I've listened to your playlist and I did not pick up on that. So I'm gonna have to go back and uh, I see you add to it all the time. So, you know, another story that is a little bit too close to reality, I think for us is their <laughs> manager, of course, is the lead singer's girlfriend. <laughs> so the stories we could tell there. Uh, yes. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny because it's such a cliche, but it, it's never worked out good. Hmm. You know, I mean, not that artists don't switch managers a lot of times. And, you know, everyone always thinks, oh, it's, you know, who cares about my career more than this person? And, you know, and that may be true. It doesn't necessarily mean they have the skill set to navigate that world right. and that they might not lead you down the wrong path. Uh, yeah, we know a bunch of artists who, uh, you know, ended up divorcing their managers. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, yeah those, it, it, it's always bad. Those stories will come out elsewhere. We'll talk about that. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned comic books come out in a series, not one by one, like they did in the old days, right? Or at least with image. And there's six issues out. I assume that's how it works. So is another six issues the next batch? You know, that's an interesting question because the comic world, of course, is being jostled by, you know, the pandemic like the rest of the world. I feel like one of the things this pandemic is doing is sort of nudging things that were close to the cliff off the cliff. You know, were movie theaters going to last anyway? Uh, right. because, you know, attendance is down, you know, and people want to go see Marvel movies. They don't want to go see personal dramas anymore. Right. They want that stuff streamed into their house. So comics are sort of in that vein. And the monthly comic market is largely driven by people who are speculating on what the value of the things are going to be in the future, which is uh, not the way to buy anything, you know, <laughs> except stocks. <laughs> um, a lot of people buy the first issue and then they say i like this 
I will wait until it's all collected and I'll buy it then. Wow. And so I think what we're heading to is more of the French version where you put out relatively inexpensive full story. You're not writing to six issues that need a cliffhanger to get people to go, you're, you've got the whole story and you just put it all together and oh. it comes out at once. And the difficulty about that is that the monthly comics help generate income to pay for the origination the writer and the artist to live essentially uh, in most comics, and then and then the collections where you make money. Right. I mean that that puts a totally different kind of a process on you. Where you you said you have a story that you know is the Martin Mills adventure where you track his whole life. So you've got a plan for this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I got an end. You got an end. He, he's huh. dead now. <laughs> Did I read somewhere that you were thinking of illustrating an issue yourself, or is that just my mind? So, no, I would very much like to draw it myself, and I've been working towards that. I'd certainly love to work with Moritat again, and there are drawings in all of the issues. Well, I shouldn't say all the issues, but in most of the issues that are my drawings. Like in the first issue, there's a section where I sort of explain the whole music business, and basically that I drew and. When he delivered it to me, I was like, wow, this is my thing. And he's like, yeah, it was fine. I just, I just, you know, cleaned it up a little bit. Wow. So I sent him like scrawly pencils, but um, you know, I'm really proud of that. That section is a different style from the rest of the book. And I need to brush up on my anatomy and my framing and all that stuff. So I've been working on that since uh, issue six came up. Is there a timeline for the next six issues? I mean, I'm hooked. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I can't wait to get it done. I have to finish this other project that we're going to talk about um, before I wade all the way in. But I have enough of it written so that if I handed off what I have to Moritat, he could start drawing it right away. The question is, do I want to draw it or not at this point? So I'm going to assume, and we're moving to your other projects, I'm going to assume that Gunning for Hits is your comic book project. You don't have another series or storyline or characters in mind, or do you? I do. I have oh. I actually I have two other stories, two other concepts. I want to get those going too, but Gunning for Hits is the main thing that I want to get to. The other two are interesting, and they will actually intersect in weird ways with Gunning for Hits. Well, it sounds very cool. And I know you're also still involved in the music industry. Uh, Super Megabot is your outlet. What can you tell us about that? So back in, you know, 2015 or 2016 or something, Tom Senright, who was a really good friend of mine who worked at Rikodisc, and I decided to start a reissue label because we had worked in the music business all our lives. So we felt like there was a market. And as we're seeing now, like lots of things are going out of print really fast. We felt like there were all these great records that had sort of been missed. Again, this comes back to the revenge fantasy thing. Some that had never been even put out on CD, some things that had been out of print for, you know, 15, 20 years that still had a market for them. So, and I'm a champion of physical stuff because lots of things are not going to be available on streaming. Lots of things are not on streaming now. Uh, yeah, so we started this label and uh, the intention was to just do catalog stuff. And then through some weird set of coincidences, I was talking to somebody who knew a guy named Jeff Whalen, who is the kind of creative mastermind behind the band Czar that I have been talking about. And he had just finished recording a new solo album and he didn't know where to put it. I had told Thomas early on, if I ever say I want to do a new artist project, just beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to him and I said, okay, you know, now's the time for you to beat me up, but listen to this record. 
And I sent it to him and he was like, this is amazing. Like, I can't even believe that we would have the opportunity to put this thing out. And so we are in the catalog business and the Jeff Whalen business. Okay. Well, you mentioned, you know, you're a big fan of physical product. I'm certainly glad to hear that. You know, it's tough designing things postage stamp size, you know, and getting the detail. But um, you're, you're definitely... Uh, one of the world's biggest CD advocates and in a, in a vinyl reissue world and that's coming around. Tell, tell us why you still are a CD guy. Well, first of all, if you've ever had to move your vinyl collection, um, <laughs> that's, that's a big part of it. I mean, and look, you know, I don't have anything against vinyl and I'm happy that people are buying physical media in any format. And certainly, you know, as you said, designing covers they got smaller and smaller, mm-hmm. right? And and the CD was, you know, was part of that. I understand that joy of holding a 12 by 12 album cover or a big box set in your hand and having lots of stuff to look at. Like, that's awesome. And I'm all in favor for any of that. But the problem with vinyl is, and people often say, oh, you know, CDs are badly mastered. And, you know, that is true. Some CDs are badly mastered. Some vinyl's badly mastered. The difference is, the first time you play vinyl, no matter how good your turntable is, it starts to degrade because you're dragging a needle across vinyl and there's friction. So eventually, the more you play it, the worse it's going to sound. And that's not the case with the CD. And sure, initially, Sony tried to sell the CD as this indestructible format, which you know it obviously isn't. And you can manufacture a CD that's got a little tiny air hole in it and aluminum will oxidize and rust out and then it won't play. But that's rarely rare. CDs just, they sound the same on day one as they sound on play 9,000. I'm with you on that. You know, in the interesting time and space thing where we're back to the future, maybe, um, I know you're hard at work on another project. Uh, What can you tell us about Ryko Book? Yeah, so I can tell you that I'm not sure that'll be the name of it. But that's kind of that's okay. That's, that's how that's how we word. that's how we at know it as as you've reached out to us. So, uh, yeah. a, a book on the history of you know perhaps one of the greatest independent labels in the world. Yeah, I mean that's really how I look at it. And also, you know, one of the labels that has best curated the material that they had in their repertoire, and they're sort of forgotten now because the label was sold to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers owned Rhino. As you know from working at Rikodisc, a lot of times people would get the two confused because of the similarity of the name and the similarity of the mission, to be honest. So, you know, it was a fair thing. But obviously, if you own both and you've invested a whole bunch of money in Rhino, you're not really going to keep Ryko going as an ongoing concern. People who were in that CD era, they remember Ryko really well. When Bowie died, I went out and I did some speaking engagements talking about what it was like to work with him and um, you know what some of the lessons were that I took away from basking in his glorious light. And I was always really surprised at the end of shows, people would have questions about Rikodisc. And I didn't want Rikodisc to get lost in the sands of time and forgotten. So uh, I'm writing this book about it. And luckily, you know, we've all stayed friends and people have done great interviews and I'm learning tons of stuff that I didn't know when I was there. I worked at Ryko from the mid 80s until 1999. And then I came back in 2002. So I think of 
any RICO employee, I probably had the longest tenure yeah. or close to it anyway, and got to see different versions of the company. So anyway, I, want, I really wanted to tell that story because I think there's a lot of value in it. And I think um, there's a lot of things that people who care about this kind of inside baseball stuff about how the music business works and how that company worked and what went right and what went wrong will be really interested in the story. And I will say, just because I'm writing this book about this sort of corrupt uh, you know, <laughs> music industry executive, that one of the things that was really great about Rikidis was that it was a very moral record company, which is almost the antithesis of what a record company was when the label started. And I think that that was really of value to us. It attracted people to the label because they knew we weren't con artists. Yeah, it was an unbelievable place to work. And I think it, it has, you know, you mentioned different versions, but the brand is its strength and, you know, it has a hugely popular fan base out there. Maybe not the biggest, but everybody who knew and loved Rikidis were huge fans. So any idea when that's coming out? So the goal right now, I've been working on it for years and uh, the pandemic has actually helped because people have free time to do interviews, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but if there's an upside to this, that would, that would be one of them to me. I'm close. And I think the goal is to wrap up the writing by the end of October, because publishing is such a bizarre situation right now. And, you know, I've heard from friends who've written music books that the advances aren't great. I kind of want to get into the weeds on this myself. I think we're going to launch it as a Kickstarter because I have lots of cool stuff that I've collected from ex-employees and things that I saved when the office in Salem was closing down. There were giant dumpsters outside and they were just throwing stuff into them. And I will say I was not beyond dumpster diving to pull out stuff that was going to end up getting ground. So there'll be lots of cool options and that's a good way for us to go with it. Well, it sounds like a great book. And, uh, you know, I hope that we can get you back on when that's out. And that'll probably be, you know, a year and change anyway. But I know everybody is participating and the founders are participating and have endorsed you and to tell their story, really. And uh, I certainly look forward to reading it. It's been a blast writing it. It's been a blast reconnecting with people and reliving it and thinking about what a really special place and experience it was. And I'm trying really hard to do it justice as a, you know, I guess I shouldn't say an amateur writer because I'm, you know, I've had a few things published, but uh, it's a tall order to live up to the task. So Jeff, you got your hands on a lot of different music projects. Where can people go to learn about this stuff? So the central hub is jeffrugvy.com, R-O-U. G, V as in Victor, I-E. There's also a gunningforhits.com. There's a supermegabot.com. The Ryko book, there isn't a website yet, but there is a Twitter feed that's Ryko book, and there's a Facebook feed that's Ryko book. And how about the Spotify uh, playlists for Gunning for Hits? Yeah, if you're a Spotify user or even an Apple Music, it's just called Gunning for Hits playlist, and it'll pop right up. Well, thank you, Jeff Rugby. Gunning for Hits, a music thriller of six series of graphic novels. Uh, Ryko book coming soon. And thanks again, Jeff. Thank you, Steve. Been a blast. All right, my man. Take it easy. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.